Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Ruby Tapia about what we're calling the Cornell Sweatshirt Tweet. Welcome to the show, Dr. Tapia. Thank you very much. I'm really delighted to be here. Before we uh, unpack what it means that you uh, made the Cornell sweatshirt tweet, will you please tell us a bit about yourself? Absolutely. Um, So my name is Ruby. Um, Ruby Tapia, I'm a department chair of a women's and gender studies department um, at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor right now. I've been doing that administrative position for about two and a half years, and I just signed up to do three more years. Um, I sort of felt like the pandemic wasn't, um, didn't give me kind of a a real context um, for what it could be, should be, might be to administer such an exciting department and work with such exciting colleagues. Um, just because everything was so surreal, um, everything from budgets being frozen to us having to learn to teach online, um, which opened up a lot of awareness and possibilities um, for us in terms of educating ourselves about accessibility in education. So that was great. Um, but I'm continuing to play this role as chair. Um, at the same time, I have a faculty appointment in women's and gender studies and a faculty appointment in English languages and literature. Um, and I do work um, on a number of, of topics, I'm starting to even you know expand more and more as I'm getting into creative nonfiction writing. Um, but primarily my research focuses on critical prison studies, primarily from an abolitionist perspective very interested in um, the gendered experiences of incarceration and the carceral state. I also write about theories of racialization, histories of racialization, experiences of race, gender, violence, um, and particularly um, what I call visualities of terror and trauma. Um, So I'm working on a book right now that's been in process for quite some time. Um, it's on, it's actually on prison photography um, and takes up the subjects of um, sympathetic carceral um, populations. So populations that are imprisoned and that the public can kind of fairly easily sympathize with and through that sympathy find a critique or what seems to be like a critique of imprisonment and the carceral state in prison as a system. But my argument is ultimately that as long as we are only focused on and able to be moved by already sympathetic subjects, um, people like young people, uh, people who are innocent, um, mothers even, pregnant women, um, they tend to really compel a lot of sympathy and incite outrage about prison conditions. But until prison conditions actually incite outrage um, for and on behalf of everybody whom they affect, we aren't going to get anywhere close to looking to a different system 
for addressing social problems. Um, and so I make a kind of counterintuitive argument that we need to not be focusing on what is the most easiest thing to focus on when we're working toward a critique of um, one of the most important, crucial, formative systems of oppression that this country has ever had. Um, and so that's a long-winded way of, of saying what I work on. Um, but I do this through the lens of thinking about representations in visual culture, mostly photography um, and some film. And hopefully that book will be out within the next year. And are you doing the photography? No, that's a really great question. Um, I can take some pictures with my iPhone, you know, every now and again. Um, my daughter is actually a photographer, um, my 21-year-old daughter. I also have an eight-year-old daughter. So um, that's kind of, you can imagine like a reboot of, of, of life <laughs> um, in between all of that. But um, I am not a picture taker or um, anything like an art maker beyond uh, um, how I try to imagine myself as a writer. So that's where I'm creative is through writing. Um, I come at photography and these questions that I was just mentioning and these interests that I was just mentioning um, as a theorist and as a photography critic. Um, so I understand the apparatus of photography, the history and the development of it actually um, as being coincident with um, historically the rise of um, incarceration in the prison system. So photography was really key um, in the early um, surveillance practices and documentation and identification of incarcerated people and um, was used in really um, interesting and um, shameful ways um, to kind of fix ideas about criminality along the lines of of race and um, disability, et cetera. So um, I do know how photographs work, um, but I think about how they work more in the affective realm um, at the level of their reception, circulation, dissemination, and interpretation um, and framing. So I'm on the critical side of photography studies and not on the production side. How did you become interested in that subject? Um, so I was always interested in visual culture. Um, I it's a really good question, actually. It comes it 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 comes down to my interest in um, comparative ethnic studies. And when I was a, an undergrad um, at, at Cornell, and which I'm sure we'll get to, when I was an undergrad at Cornell, um, I went there originally. I was able to convince my family and the people who cared about me and my well-being in Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, which is a beautiful place, um, and also happens to a place happens to be a place that if you grow up there, um, you rarely leave there. People come there from other places when they're in different stages of life, you know, to retire there or to buy a second house or something like that. But if you grow up there, you you tend to stay there. Um, and that has to do with lots of things. It has to do with, uh, you know, a really important sense of, of community and family, 
Um, you know, a lot of it is religiously inflected and, um, you know, inflected by Catholicism, also patriarchy, <laughs> um, Latino culture, um, in my own, my own family, um, was really, really tight. And that, that was always, um, a quality and a gift and also a kind of burden, um, and responsibility that attended, um, being who we were culturally. So not a lot of leaving, not a lot of going away. Um, for college, uh, even when we had opportunities like going to Ivy Leagues and, and things like that, I was encouraged to stay and go to the University of New Mexico, which is a beautiful university, um, but not where I wanted to be. So um, I went to Cornell. I majored in, I, I, I promised that I was going to take a major and a course of study that was going to prepare me for law school to become a lawyer, to become successful at being a lawyer, which meant also becoming economically stable, um, which we weren't remotely when I was growing up. Um, and I lost my dad really early. Um, that did not, that didn't help matters, um, violently and suddenly to suicide when I was 14 years old. Um, so going away was hard, um, on my family and hard on me. So I had to sort of promise that it would be worth it. And the promise I made is that I would go to, into law school afterward, make some money, come home and, and be a lawyer in, in New Mexico. But then I got to Cornell and I um, continued to fall in love with reading and writing and reading and writing in the context when I first got there of a first year seminar that happened to be on ethnic literature. And the first book that we read in that class was Gloria Anzaldúa's Borderlands, um, which is a life-altering book pretty much for anybody who reads it, but for somebody who comes from New Mexico and is a Chicana and um, is struggling with the same crises, senses of um, betrayal, self-betrayal, accusations of betrayal, accusations of abandonment of various cultures, various parts of her identity, it really resonated with me. Um, and the metaphors and the materialities and the histories that she was talking about, it, it was uncanny. Uh, I felt like I went away to read about myself. And that's what happened. And I became very interested in the fact that, you know, the, the, the possibility, but then the fact that was right there overtly in front of me that I could I could write, um, but I didn't take it so far as I can write as a creative writer. I took it only as far as I can write as somebody who does literary analysis because a PhD in English, for example, seemed a little more practical to me than an MFA, which is what I would have done if I had really had real courage to do what I wanted to do. So I majored in English. Um, and I didn't really tell anybody that I was switching my major from a pre-law political science uh, degree that would help me with international law at some point. Changed my major to English and then took on another major because I was so interested in ethnic literature, um, took on a major in Africana studies, um, and then became really interested in how it is that 
race is shaped historically and constructed historically. Um, and something that became very clear to me is that that happens through language and it happens through visual language, that race is primarily a visual signifier. So if race is primarily a visual signifier and visual culture is so formative um, to our knowledge production, what happens when you spend a lot of time thinking about that relationship? So um, I wanted to continue to think about that as a graduate student um, when I kind of, kind of figured out what graduate, stu- graduate school was, and that took me a minute, and I'd love to talk with you about that. So I hope you remember to ask me how I even um, came to know what graduate, graduate school was. But I went to graduate school um, in ethnic studies um, at the University of California, San Diego, and I did a dissertation on visual representations of maternal bodies um, in context of national crises, death and remembering. So I had a chapter on the widows of 9-11 in that book. It's called American Pietas, Visions of Race, Race, Death, and the Maternal. Um, That came out in, I think, 2010. That was my first book. And um, chapters also on teen pregnancy prevention campaigns and the um, xenophobic hysteria that was whipped up through visual media campaigns um, in California in the late 90s um, that really compelled people to put together their anti-immigration sentiment with their um, inclination to deny public health services um, to people of color, immigrant communities, Latino communities, Asian American communities in particular. Um, so I read visual media campaigns of, you know, that were about abstinence, quote unquote abstinence. And then I also had a chapter, you know, on the widows of 9-11, all of these um, different angles on maternal imagery and reproduction of otherness as a threat. Um, while I was working on that and finishing that up, people knew I was interested in maternal imagery and representations of maternal bodies and a colleague of mine at Ohio State, where I had my first position in women's studies, um, mentioned that he was interested in bringing a photography exhibition to OSU that had been curated by an infamous um, historian of race and reproductive rights in the US, whom I had read. Uh, and admired for some time. Her name is Ricky Solinger, and she's written many, many books um, on reproductive justice and abortion and is, um, as I said, a preeminent historian on these topics. And um, she curated an exhibition called Beggars and Choosers, Motherhood is Not a Class Privilege, and it was comprised of documentary photographs from a number of different collections of and by famous documentary photographers. Mel Rosenthal is one of them. Um, the other names are slipping my mind. And she had gone to these photographers and said, do you have any pictures of people, women, who are considered too gay, too disabled, too non-white, too poor to be mothers? Do you have any pictures of those women mothering beautifully and with dignity? And she found a few. She put them together and she wanted to change people's minds about what constitutes motherhood and what motherhood looks like through this exhibition. And I was, I was sort of dubious about 
trusting the public to be reoriented to these questions just by displaying other, quote unquote, other women mothering beautifully. Um, so I was skeptical of it, but I said, this is an interesting project. And my friend who originally invited me to be a part of the committee to bring Ricky's exhibition to OSU said, you know, you should really talk to Ricky about what your issues are with it, what your what your doubts are about it. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. And I said, okay. So he connected us over email and Ricky decided, Ricky and I decided together we, we, that we would talk on the phone. And we talked on the phone. We talked about, you know, how the ex- exhibition was going to be set up when she came to OSU. And then she said, so I hear you have some questions and reservations about beggars and choosers. And I said, yes. And I was fresh out of graduate school and there was, I was in this mode of, um, um, I, I'm kind of, uh, well, I'm just, I'm just going to say it. It's something that, that I regret lasted for as long as it did which is this mode of critique that is founded and informed, but not as generous as it could be. And so I was still kind of in that mode. I was just out of grad, just out of grad school. It was my first year um, as an assistant professor. And it's hard to get out of that mode. How do you get out of that mode? Um, It's hard to. Yeah, it really is. And I think that once you do your own work, and you realize how hard it is <laughs> once you write that first book um, and you realize this isn't going to just go to a shelf or ProQuest or wherever they keep the dissertations that, you know, I hope nobody, in my case, nobody ever reads. Right. But that this is you're writing for You're writing for an audience and between having to figure out who that audience is and getting your own, really getting your own bearings and grounding and really fortifying your your position with knowledge that's fully baked, you know, or wants to be, it really humbles you. And, and matching your work to language and methodologies that weren't created for your work. Yeah, exactly. And so you're in this space where you're trying to say what you're trying to say. And it's it's not always, it's not always communicable right. yet. Yeah. There's, cause there's no model for it, right? You're ma- you're, you're making the model for what you're wanting to fit your ideas into. And that is a very disorienting place to be. And but it sounds like Ricky was receptive to the conversation. Very. She was so receptive. And now that I know her so well, I mean, this is, this is a great story. Um, I'm a collaborator with her now. I co-edit um, a series for the University of California Press. Um, it's Reproductive Justice, the Vision for the 21st Century. Um, so when I was talking to Ricky about the issues I had with beggars and choosers, we had that conversation. She said, thank you. I really appreciate everything that you've said. You know, I'm about to start a new project. It's on incarcerated mothers and incarcerated women. And I'm thinking that I don't want to do this project without you, this new project, because of everything you've just told me and that I can learn from you. And I felt like, whoa, what a <laughs> what an incredibly generous way to respond to my 20 minutes of questions to this woman 
And she talks about it now when we laugh about it now, like, God, almost 20, 20 years later, we laugh about it. And she says that she experienced me as very, very smart, but also irreverent. <laughs> um, and I don't remember how I experienced her except for, whoa, you're inviting me to do something. So she invited me to be a part of this project, which was another exhibition that was about incarcerated motherhood. There were various components to that. But another really important part of that project was an associated volume, an edited collection that was edited by Ricky, myself, and a few other scholars, legal scholars, a historian, another historian, I believe, um, a formerly incarcerated person who worked at the time for the Osborne Institute on um, incarcerated women. And it was called Interrupted Life, uh, Experiences of Incarcerated Women in the U.S. That also came out in 2010. So since then, I've been working in critical prison studies and looking at how it is that we learn to see, or actually, more importantly, how through images of the prison, we learn to not see what the carceral state does. And that goes back to what I was saying about the ways in which representations of sympathetic subjects actually occlude and make difficult for us to grasp um, the the violence of that space and the lie that it tells us about it being a space where social problems are solved. So that's how I got into this, the the work that I'm doing now. Um, that's, I've never told a story quite that way, but um, like in that order, <laughs> but that's, that's the answer to your question about how I ended up doing what I'm doing right now. It's a wonderful answer. And I want to circle back and unpack a few things. Um, one is um, how you got to Cornell. Mm-hmm. Um, I originally learned about that story from a tweet, and tweets have limited characters, and we can only tell so much of a story. And uh, from what you tweeted, it was clear there was so much there. Um, what you didn't tweet was the part about your family of origin, losing your father, and the added complexity you must have faced of leaving your mother Mm -hmm. Uh, physically, uh, if not in other ways, to go far away. Right. In in the tweet, you tell us that you arrived with $30, one suitcase, you came on a one-way ticket, and that there's no way to call home. Can you take us back to young Ruby arriving? Yeah, I can. Um, I can now because I've kind of been through it and... um, Taking my own daughter to college a few years ago allowed me to relive this in a way that was actually reparative. I don't, I don't like the word healing. Um, it doesn't do it for me, and I also haven't healed, <laughs> so maybe why that—that's why it doesn't work. But it's such a neat word. It sounds like it's past tense. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's actually this long, messy process where things <laughs> come back up and you're like, no, I dealt with that. And it's not, healing's like this long thing. So I, I feel you on that. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's not, <laughs> it's not unidirectional either. Right. And so I just try not to use it because I think it signifies something that is not my experience. Um, in any case. Yeah. So I grew up in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And my, my father was a salesman. Um wholesale sporting goods salesman um, was always, for as long as I can remember, trying to get employment at the post office. Um, But he, 
God, it's 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 confusing, and I'm uncovering I'm uncovering more of the of the actual facts of of what happened with those applications. He was brilliant. There was no reason why he wouldn't have passed tests and things like that. Um, but I think it had something to do with um, he had a, he had a he had some kind of a record, some kind of a criminal record. I think it might have been petty theft, um, and he wouldn't lie on his application. So every time he, he tested, and I think he did this like two or three times, he was honest about, um, about, yeah, that's what my brother told me. It was petty theft. Um, and so he never, he never made it. And, um, a couple of his brothers did. They were, my uncles were employed by the post office. So my dad was stuck working on commission, selling, sporting goods, um, which is just this catch-all category for all kinds of things. Everything from like literal basketballs to like socks and uniforms to jeans. It was strange. It was called Henry Hilson, Henry Hilson and Company in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And my dad was a traveling salesman. So he was gone a lot, not making a lot of money. 8% commission. He was working on 8% commission. And I remember that, you know, we were a family of six and I learned at some point that his annual income, and my mother wasn't working at the time, was $10,000. So we were food stamps. Uh, we were struggling. Um, my mom eventually went to work and then didn't and went to work and then didn't. He was an alcoholic. Um, he was depressed. He was deeply, deeply deeply loving and poetic and smart and really invested in his family and also ill from alcoholism and depression. And he, um, you know, he hurt my mom. He was violent and we experienced that and we saw that. And it was not something that we talked about uh, widely or with the family beyond our immediate family, those who were living in the household, because there was a lot of shame around it. And also he was such a, like almost majestic figure that it was almost kind of impossible to even suggest that he could do wrong. He was so beloved by his grandchildren and by, you know, nieces and nephews and stuff. Um, it was kind of, you know, I, I, I'm, I realized that now I'm kind of, uh, I don't know that 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 patriarchal uh, reverence the re the reverence for the patriarch is kind of etched pretty pretty deeply, um, but I also loved who he was, and I was very close to him, and he never hurt me, but I know he he did hurt me by hurting my mother. Um, my mother finally decided to divorce him when I was a freshman in high school after eighteen years of living with. Uh, the challenges that that living with him posed. And at that point, um, I think that things became very real for him, um, the the destruction and the the, the accumulation uh, of of pain um that was just he associated with himself and um his fault, I think. Um and he killed himself on Easter Sunday in 1988 um with a garden hose that I saw him take from our garage and put into the trunk of his car. And 
I was the last one to see him. I even helped him look for it for a little bit in the garage. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and I said goodbye to him and he left. And then that was Saturday. And then he was found uh, in uh, Pine Flats campground in, um, on the outskirts of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, he, he had hanged himself with the garden hose, tying one end of it to a tree, the other end of it to his neck and jumped, died that way. Um, and that's when my grades started rising. <laughs> um, I went into this space where things got so hard emotionally and economically at home and just things just fell apart. He, he was destructive at the same time that he kept the family together. And when he left, I couldn't find any ground. Um, I didn't know. I didn't know how to be. Um, and I also felt free. <laughs> and and I, I've had shame about feeling free in that context, but it's the truth. So I felt unmoored, but also floating and like free. So that was the first time I thought I could leave. My dad's not here. And I thought, I can't. one, I have to leave. I can't live here like this. And two, I can leave because he never would have let me leave. I mean, let me, I don't know what he would have do to, what he done to keep me. But if he had been alive, I never would have gone away to, to school. I never would have. Psychic cold. Yeah, I never would have left. Um, so I started talking to my counselors and my teachers um, about how do I how do I get away? You know, like go, like go to college somewhere else. And I was always very high achieving academically, but I wasn't I wasn't really about the grades. And um, I I did have sort of issues um, like challenges with 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 authority. Um, I never got in too much trouble, um, but I wasn't very interested. I wasn't, I wasn't motivated by grades. Um, and, but after my father died and my counselor told me, Mrs. Miss Carrie, Luana Carey told me the only way you're going to leave Albuquerque Ruby is through a scholar, through scholarships. And you're really smart. And if you buckle down now, right now, you can go somewhere. And I said, okay. And then I went from like B's my the, my freshman year till straight A's all the way through. And I graduated, I graduated salutatorian, but <laughs> this is a fine point that I really want to make. <laughs> um, the person who graduated as valedictorian, I have nothing against this person, knew that we were neck and neck grade point average wise. And that person paid to take a summer school class right before our senior year and boosted their grade point average, like a 0. 0.0000005 something above mine, and then became valedictorian. And I was salutatorian. <laughs> I did try to make the argument that she paid for the spot, <laughs> but um, the principal wasn't buying it. And I said, that's fine. I'll still, and they, I, I, I still was I still gave the speech. I still gave the commencement speech, which was kind of interesting. Um, I don't remember if she gave one too. All I know is that I did. Um, 
And I did my applications and I got into Cornell. I got into Duke. I got into a bunch of other schools and I pulled out the map and I literally looked at which was the furthest, furthest school away from where Albuquerque was. And I said, I'm going there. And I didn't even know it was an Ivy League. Um, my, my counselor just said, you know, she was beaming. Um, and my dance team instructor, because I was on dance team, and that was a big, big deal in Albuquerque, actually. I was captain of the dance team. Um, so shout out to Bulldogs and Bulldoggies. Um, so meant, it means something to, to do that there. And um, they were just happy for me. And they said, yeah, Cornell will be good. We'll be good. But of course, they didn't really warn me. Um, about what a culture shock it would be. So that's how I ended up at Cornell. And I did have $30 in one suitcase. My mom asked her friends at work. She was working for Coca-Cola at the time. She asked her friends at work for some donations to my plane ticket. And she bought me a one-way ticket to Ithaca. Um, and we did not have phone service because she couldn't pay a phone bill. So I didn't have a phone. So that's why in my tweet said I, I couldn't call home. And I did... Um, my parental family contribution in my financial aid package was zero. Um, I had work study as part of my financial packet, financial aid package. Most of it was gift aid, um, and it stayed that way for for the most part. Um, but I did have to do work, like work study, and I remember filling out an application for Statler or checking checking out checking a few options for work study positions. And that was snail mail time, no email at the time. And I got a card back that said that a card or a, a letter that said that I needed to go to the Statler Hotel at a certain time on a certain day to interview for the desk position that I had said I was interested in. And that's where my tweet starts. Um, that's where my, my, my Twitter thread on Cornell sweatshirt starts there. And I wrote that tweet on Easter Sunday um, this a few weeks ago, I woke up sad, more in touch with my feelings about my father's passing than I've been in a long time because I've been doing a lot of therapeutic work. So that actually makes you sadder sometimes. And I'm really in touch with my sadness and my anger. And I had seen a tweet that had been, um, referenced, uh, it was by a professor at a different university and they had said that they found people posing in selfies with sweatshirts with the names of the schools that they were going to attend graduate school at or had just gotten hired at, that they found it kind of um, high schooly and kind of juvenile. And um, this person had been taken to task by many people on Twitter already. I didn't feel like addressing this person directly. But that discourse was still going around and the tweet, that particular tweet had been posted like a couple of days before. But I woke up that morning on Easter Sunday and I saw somebody mentioning that person's tweet. And on my phone before coffee, I just wrote this like 12 thread, 12 tweet thread about how I acquired my first Cornell sweatshirt was, which was when my, one of my brother's and my mother came to visit me for graduation and my brother was just devastated that I didn't own anything that had Cornell on it. And he bought me the $60 sweatshirt and um, was just kind of turning around and around and around the whole time we were, we were there together those couple of days, just saying over and over again, I can't believe you did this. I can't believe you did this. 
I can't believe you did this. And I realized now that he was just, he was having the same kind of shock that I was having when I first got there, which was, who are these people? <laughs> Where do they come from? Uh, I don't know how to talk to them. They know things I don't know. They certainly have so many things I don't have. Um, the Statler person ended up sending me to housekeeping. That was part of the tweet thread. I was supposed to be there for a front desk position. They told me it was filled when um, when they looked at me. I was unmistakably brown and um, not from there. And I was desperate. And I said I was desperate. I think I might have even said, I, I have to work. I have to work. And um, she said, well... If you go here in the hotel, you have to take an elevator and go somewhere, then they can help you. And I went there and, and I wasn't really thinking about what I was doing or what, what that meant. And then I arrived at this door that said housekeeping. And I, I was like, holy shit. Okay. I have to work. And so that's what I did. So I did for about a year and a half and I didn't tell anybody what my job was. My housemates, I'm still in touch with them. Some of them, not my housemates, my hallmates said they didn't, when they saw my, my Twitter thread, one of them wrote me and said, you know, I never knew that that's what you were doing. Um, that's how I got my sweatshirt. Um, the thread's still up. It got like 11,000, 11,000 likes and it was retweeted like 1200 times or something like that. And um, people just kept saying, this is me. This is me. Thank you for telling the story. This is me. This is me. I feel seen. I worked here. I did this. Nobody saw me. So many stories. So in response to some of the, some of the responses that were very celebratory, which I appreciated. And I got like, I got a kind of recognition, I think, that I didn't realize I didn't realize would serve my spirit in the ways that it did, but it did. It, it uplifted me at the same time that took me back to some uh, like other memories. But um, I, I felt like I needed to redirect the discourse that was about you made it, right? Because I did make it. I'm in an incredibly privileged position right now at a, at a wonderfully resourced school. So from poverty to, to department chair, right? But what's missing there, um, if, if we just stop the trajectory here about like where I'm at is that I'm still struggling and academic institutions have not changed all that much. The language and the goals and the plans and the five-year DEI commitments and all of that, that has changed as a result of activism and pressure and the raising of consciousness um, um, for everybody by first generation students and students of color, et cetera, other social movements, et cetera, time, history. Um, but I still um, get funny looks when I walk into certain spaces um, where people don't necessarily think that, um, you know, Chicanas are uh, department chairs or, you know, it's just a feeling it's, you know, it's not, <laughs> it's not made up um, where you go, you walk into a room or you sign on to a zoom meeting and there's this like, you know, I'm not a mind reader, but I've had to see it happen so many times um, 
they're waiting for the chair. And then they're like, oh, that that's her. Or a classroom at the University of Michigan, especially when I was younger and at Ohio State, you walk into the classroom and students are looking at you like, where's the professor? And then you introduce yourself as the professor and then you get another diff- different kind of look. And it's alienating. And it's not their fault that that the institution hasn't given given them other examples of people that I look like, but it's an experience that is ongoing. And so what I said in my follow-up tweet is, thank you for getting the stakes of what I was saying. I really want to say that that look that the woman at the Statler gave me when I was 17 years old is still here every day. And for trans students, disabled students, queer students, students of color, first-generation students that were still struggling with similar orientations to belonging and similar differentials in terms of preparation for being at certain places. I just felt like I had to say that because it was feeling hallmarky and like um, I didn't want to be an object for, I didn't want to be an object through which people could feel like the structural issues that I spoke to in that tweet that were from my experiences when I was 17 years old had been resolved. I didn't want to rain on people's parades or take away what I'd accomplished from even myself or minimize that, but I didn't want to leave it there, if that makes sense. It does. People wanted the headline, but not the story. And you wanted them to hold the two truths. You did make it but not because of a system that wanted you to make it. Exactly. In spite of. In spite of. Yeah. You did say in the thread, I almost died there. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um, I appreciate that you caught that. Um, and I've been thinking about whether or not I, I, I want to talk about this, but I think it's important to talk about it. Um. I was, and this is something that I think people need to know, um, not for me because I'm okay now, but there's a lot of violence that happens in um, university settings. And um, we were aware, we tend to be aware of, more aware of, not the degree, not, not the degree of, not the manifestations of, not always the consequences of the prevalences of um, sexual harassment and sexualized violence and assault on campus, um, peer-to-peer, right? Um, uh, staff-to-staff, faculty-to-student, right? That's becoming more um, uh, prevalent in um, the popular discourse and, and, and in some productive ways, the institutional discourse. But what we don't talk about is intimate partner violence that is not necessarily sexual harassment or um, sexual assault. And um, I was in a relationship my um, freshman year at Cornell um, with somebody that was incredibly physically abusive to me and um, about whom um, I I, I told, um, I think one of my hallmates my freshman year and, and my sweet mates in my sophomore year knew it. And I have apologies to make to them about making them hold that as a secret because they wanted to do something for me. 
they wanted to help me and I made them not, I mean, they, they took care of me by not reporting it. And I asked them to do that. Um, and I have a lot of mixed feelings about that, but I think people need to be aware that, um, there are young people in relationships in, in college that are getting the shit beat out of them in their dorm rooms. And it's not an easy thing to talk about. It feels very misplaced. That kind of violence feels even like more, not more. It's a different kind of violence, right? I mean, have we heard about that? Do I mean, like Christina, like, do you, do you remember reading about like anything like that? I mean, you can probably think about stories about sexual harassment, right? It's such a disconnect when you get to college with all of your hopes and dreams and and especially if you've physically changed place and you've dramatically physically changed place. And if you've believed that the school is everything the brochure and the tour guide told you it is. Yeah. To then experience what goes on in dorms and to experience what goes on when your friends come crying and tell you Mm -hmm. the students aren't prepared for that. No, 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 nobody's prepared for it. I, I'm not, I mean, now I know what I was asking of them and I've, I have apologized to a couple of them and they, they, they say, you know, you have nothing to apologize for. You were, I would agree with them. Yeah. You were a kid too. Yeah, I was a kid. I was a kid, but it was like, a, you know, it was a repetition also, you know, it was a, re- I mean, and this is just like, whoa, like right now <laughs> we just talked about my dad and my mom and nobody, yeah. nobody talking about it. Right. Right. Um, and, and I've been angry at my family of origin for not being willing to talk about it now. And I inherited that that those structures of silence from that place. Not not surprisingly, because I just come from it, right? Um, so that that happened. But I do want to clarify because um, I don't I don't have any problem um, saying that my first boyfriend um, did what he did, um, and people know that he did, and he knows that he did. But I just want to clarify in the event that. Um, folks kind of know my history or my history of relationships that after that first boyfriend, um, I connected with somebody else who um, I was in a longer term relationship with, who was um, smart about what I had been through, loving about what I had been through, understanding beyond um, anything I could have imagined I was entitled, uh, to, to ask for or expect, um, was like an intellectual counterpart, um, like a real (laughs) partner. And we were young, but, um, like somebody who reflected things to me about myself, um, that were true, but that were, were masked or covered over by um, many other things, including that previous relationship. And so I don't want anybody to sort of misidentify that person, <laughs> if they know who I'm talking about, as an abusive person, because he wasn't. Um, he was anything but. Um, so 
that 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 when I say I almost died there, um, it was a, about being um, hurt in ways that I, I don't I, I don't want to sort of I don't want to talk about the injuries. Um, there were there were um, times. My, my sophomore year, I didn't make it to two of my final exams because I couldn't leave my dorm because of what I looked like. Um, so it was really bad. And then, then there, there was depression on top of that. And so, um, like suicidal ideation was just part of my life as well. Um, so I did almost die there and it was, it wasn't, it wasn't, metaphorical in, in, you know, the tweet. Um, and I was just writing the tweet, like I said, uncaffeinated on Easter Sunday. And it was multiple. I'm not really good at these multi-tweet threads, multi-tweet threads, threads. <laughs> um, and I was frustrated and, um, you know, my daughter was, you know, trying to get my attention. I remember that morning and I just kept saying, mommy has to write something. Mommy has to write something. And um, she said, is it work? Um, and I said, yeah, actually it is. Actually, it's it's really hard work. And she respected that and kind of gave me my space. Um, and that's what that's what came out. So I was alluding to everything that was hard, but also just really angry. And I think wanting to mark i really wanted to mark the idea or the fact that that sometimes we have no idea we have no idea what's going on for our students among our students and sometimes they're distant or you know not paying attention in class or we feel like they're not invested in the course material, <laughs> they keep turning things in late. They didn't even show up to the final. We take it personally. I don't anymore, by the way. Um, I think I've always been sympathetic to those kinds of things. I'm incredibly, incredibly sympathetic to those kinds of things now, for sure. Um, explicitly so. But to the degree that we as educators can keep in mind that as smart as we are, and even um, uh, if we think of ourselves as emotionally intelligent and attuned and feminist and all of those things that that we don't know what's going on for our students unless they tell us. We just don't know. And any number of things can be happening. And um, it needs to not it needs to not be about us unless we find a way of appropriately confirming that, I think we need to take care um, to give people space and um, to not be invasive. But if you see something that's not right, um, if you can find a way and practice ways and strategize with other educators about how do I, how do I check in with the student without invading their privacy? And how do I offer resources that I think they might need without making offensive assumptions, because I think it could have made a huge difference to me if somebody who was in a position of power, not my peers, but somebody who knew how, knew what to do, had said, what, what's hard for you right now? Um, 
about about that that thing in particular. Um, the person who did say that, um, I'll, I'll tell you when I'll, I want to see if you have any other questions. But this is an important part of the story because because it's about what I was talking about, which is reaching out. So, um, Reeve Parker. I, I want to say his name and honor him. I've been too afraid to look him up because he was um, he was elderly when I was a freshman at Cornell, and um, if he's still alive, it would be lovely and amazing. But I I, I worry that he's not. Um, so I don't know. Um, I I think that's like a loss that I don't want to um, be real. If you don't know, you can always remember him alive. It can stay there. Yeah, exactly. So he was my one of my freshman writing instructors in honors section, my second semester freshman year. He was the chair of the English department at Cornell at the time. And um, I was very out of place. I was the only person of color in that class. I guess that's not fair. I don't know if Rena, Rena Shinawani, <laughs> I'll be sure to send this to her. Um, she's Syrian, so I don't know how she identifies. Um, anyway, we, re- we read a story about by Jorge Luis Borges um, that, that centered on these twins named uh, the Vicario brothers. And I don't know, remember the, the title of the story, short story. We had to write a paper on it. And I was just very uncomfortable. I didn't talk much in that class. And then I realized after we wrote our first paper, I had, I decided I'm not I'm not going to come back to this class. I'm just not going to attend this class. I'm going to just write the papers. But when we came into class on the day when he was going to turn back the papers to us, give us back our papers with the grades and comments, my um, first sentence of my paper was written on the chalkboard. And I thought, oh, God. <laughs> I'm going to be, I'm about to be really embarrassed. And he said something like, Jorge Luis Borges himself would have been fascinated by this crystallization of something, right? So he was, he was giving praise, right? And I thought, dude, you're not slick. I'm the only person, person of color in class. You're just trying to make me feel better. Um, but I appreciated it. And then after that, I didn't go to class. I just turned in my papers. I was nearing the end of the semester and he called me in my dorm room and I answered the phone. I said, hello. He said, is this Ruby? And I said, yes. He said, this is Professor Parker. And I said, hello. He said, you haven't been to class. And I said, yeah, I know. I was very depressed. I was getting beaten up and I was depressed. And um, he said, but your papers are outstanding. And I said, thank you. I'd gotten A's on all my papers with like lots of comments. And he said, and I don't really know what to do because participation is such a huge part of your grade. And I don't want to fail you because you're an incredibly talented reader and writer. And I said, I understand if you have to fail me. Cause that was where I might, that's where I was at, you know, my mindset. It's okay. You can fail me. And he said, if you come to talk to me in my office hours, I will grade you just on your written work, but I need you to come and visit me during office hours. And I said, okay. I went to visit him during office hours. And he said, tell me a little bit about yourself. And I'm kind of shrugging. And he gets some things out of me. And then he said, I think you're really, really, really talented, Ruby. And you could go really far 
with what you love, which is reading and writing. Cause that's what I said. I love to read and I love to write. I hate it here. I said, I hate it here, but I love to read and I love to write. And he said, there's this new program It's called the Mellon Minority Undergraduate Fellowship Program. It's now called the Mellon Mays Program. But it had just started maybe like two years before that, or maybe it was that year or something. He said, it's fairly new. And it pairs undergraduates who have promise from underrepresented communities with mentors that will help them learn how to do original research toward getting them interested in graduate school. And I think you'd be a really good candidate for that. I said, what's graduate school? It was like, you basically get to read and write <laughs> and get paid, get paid for it. I said, okay, cool. He said, and you get a summer stipend and you get, I pair you with a faculty member or we pair you with a faculty member, you get to work with them. And I said, what does that mean? Work with them. He said, in your case, in, in, in English, English literature students cases, it'll mean reading a lot and writing. And I said, cool. <laughs> he said, I've already filled out the application pretty much for you, but you have to write a personal essay and then turn it back into me. And I think that you have a really good shot of getting this. I have to turn it into the deans. And I said, okay. And I went to the computer lab because I didn't know to own a computer. And I wrote the essay and I gave it back to him and I got the fellowship. And that put me in touch with um, mentors for the next several summers. I learned how to write literary analysis papers. Um, and then I was kind of off from there. Like I, that boyfriend graduated. Um, I was a Mellon Mays undergraduate fellow. I was connected with the fellows over the summer for conferences. I was in the network. I had money to read in the summer, to write in the summer. My $10,000 of my loans were paid off when I enrolled in graduate school. Through graduate school, they gave me funding for conferences. After graduate school, when I was an assistant professor, they gave me a postdoctoral fellowship for a year that helped me finish my book. Reeve Parker did that for me. He called me in my dorm room and was like, what's up? <laughs> what's wrong? <laughs> so I don't want to know if he's uh, around anymore. And I really he did. try to, sorry. No, go ahead. I've just never forgot. I just don't forget that when I see students struggling. And it makes a huge difference. I guess that uh, when I wrote that that tweet, that thread, I got a lot of um, inquiries, like press inquiries, and it responded to yours. And I'm also going to write an article for EdSurge. And the rest of them I didn't really respond to because I want this story to go to to educators and to and to students and to people who are like in the institute, the academic institution right now. And I'll stop there. What he did was so important. I'm glad that you shared the beautiful model that he gave us. Mm -hmm. One thing that's been threaded through this entire conversation is the fallout on so many students because there are unwritten rules yeah. in academia. And when you were willing to accept the F, because it was not emotionally possible for you to be back in the classroom, mm -hmm. he said, you can come to my office. And he was showing you another way to participate, another way to show him what it was that he needed from you. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And he had read your work so closely that he really saw what you had to offer and he wasn't going to let that, that go away. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he took that, that extra step. He could have just, he could have just given me the F, right? He could have said she had so much potential, but this is what she chose. Right. Or and never, and never known that there was so much you were not choosing. Exactly. And I didn't, you know, and I didn't know. I mean, I thought that's what I deserve at the time. I thought, yeah, I totally get it. These are the consequences, right? It's, it's very clear. It's very clear. It's written. But like what wasn't written was what I was, what I was negotiating and going through. So there was no way of accounting for that unless he kind of stepped out of the, the structure. Um, and he did. So yeah, that tweet about the sweatshirts and the shirts, like just really sent me off. <laughs> um, and it did for so many people. It, it it touched so many people who never got the sweatshirt. Mm-hmm. I remember being so stunned when I got there that we were supposed to buy them. <laughs> what? I know. I, I I didn't budget for this. What? <laughs> I, I was I was stunned that they were selling them to us. Um, yes. And so I think so many of us never got the sweatshirt, and. It's it's got an emotional connection, your story, to so many people who were, you know, adding just one sentence of why they related and the reasons why people related had different details, but the universality was clear mm-hmm. throughout the replies and the 1,200 retweets and the press reaching out to you that these are the stories that we don't see because nobody has the sweatshirt to pose in. These are the graduation yep. pictures that we don't see because they couldn't afford to go. These are the holiday photos that never get shown because the families can't fly back and forth to each other. It becomes more and more of the hidden stories buried in the unwritten rules of how do you, how do you get the college experience you actually signed up for, but only some people get. That's right. And it's still an inc- it's still incredibly, incredibly uneven, and it will continue to be so. And I'm not saying that we can't change things institutionally. I mean, there were some really interesting conversations among administrators on that thread where where they were saying, "Hey, you know what we need to do for welcome week is make sure everybody has a t-shirt, right? So like there were those changes that were being talked about, which is great. But the other part of it is, what can we do day to day in our roles at the university to the degree that we have access to any kind of resources or wherewithal, or, you know, if our mental health is good, you know, what can we, what can we do with balance um, that um, acknowledges that there are things that we're not seeing and that we have to account for those things. Because we are, because the institution is not going to do that. So we have to actually, we actually have to do that as individuals and as communities. So I'm just really glad that, that you reached out because I think that there were some things that I wanted to make sure to try to, to use this plat, this very unexpected platform, because it started with a, a kind of a rage tweet and a grief tweet. Um, 
and now I have this space and people are interested, like what else is there? Like tell, like, what did you mean by that? Right. Um, and that's what I meant. I guess I meant all of that. And you were telling your daughter the truth. You were doing your work. I was doing my work. Yeah, I was doing my work. Work that will change things when she shows up in 10 years. I really do. Yeah, I really do hope so. I'm definitely, you know, prepping, prepping my, my kids are having a different experience than I did. Um, someday I'll get to talk to you about how I um, moved my first daughter into college <laughs> and uh, how absolutely ridiculous I was about the carpets and the lamps and the trips to the pharmacy. And I think I must, must have bought her like 5,000 tablets of Tylenol. I mean, I was, she said, this is your trauma, mom. (laughs) This is not mine. (laughs) She just wanted to move in and I wanted to just buy everything. Um, I said, yeah, you're right. Um, it, it, it does, things do change, right? Things can change. And it's kind of a funny way of talking about how awful that was for me, but you know, we learn and, and we, we, we actually can model ourselves. Like, you know, Reeve Parker was in my other mentors and there's too many people to name. There's people, always people, always teachers, always people. Um, so yeah. And it's the one-to-one individual. Sometimes we all see the tweets where it comes down to that really old, statement of, well, if I do this for one, I have to do this for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I think when we get to those moments, if we could just tape it one, take it one step further and say, why aren't we doing this for everyone then? That's right. Why, why are we not talking about how it has to be done for everyone? I mean, the, the, the danger though there in, in that orientation is why aren't, why aren't we doing it for everyone is that if you are, you know, of a particular social background, or attuned to these issues in ways that maybe other people haven't had to be, the danger is that you'll take it, you'll try to take it all on yourself. Um, And that's not possible either. So we do have to make the institution as accountable as institutions like the institution. Institutions are, are very, they're very variable. They're, they're, they're not all the same. I think that's, that's a problem too. I don't like to talk about, talk about it as the institution, but um, we, we need to, be able to talk to people that are our peers and have similar, like I said, access to similar resources or whatever. And, and, um, and try to make change like that is um, informed by our own experiences and energized by what we care about, but that also makes use of help because we all need help. You know, we're talking about helping students, but we also need to help each other. Um, help students like, as colleagues and, you know, um, you know, staff, et cetera. Um, that's the way I'm talking about. <sighs> what do you hope this episode sparks? Um, awareness about those. Uh, you talked about them generally, but like quite beautifully. Um, the, the things that are erased or silenced or not visible for structural reasons and also for reasons of students needing to maintain their own emotional stability. So they're not necessarily talking about how they're suffering all the time. They're just trying to, they're kind of keeping their head down and just pushing through it. But being aware that that's what's happening, 
uh, wanting, wondering what it is that we're not seeing, um, not not being on automatic because the, the institutions, the academic institutions want to run smoothly, of course, and they run smoothly by um, things not changing. And when we have first-gen students, underrepresented students, students without certain kinds of resources or access to educational opportunities that are apparently just rampantly abundant in, in these elite spaces, um, we're not gonna we're not gonna see them unless we look for them because they're trying to survive, and there's a lot of shame um, in struggling at that point. There should not be. I'm saying it as a matter of fact, but not as something that I I resigned to as a should be thing. <laughs> um, but we have to look for them. So I hope that what what people take away from this is that um, that we that we look for the things that are not visible that um, are, are meaningfully shaping experiences in a detrimental way for young people who are often alone. I hope you will come back and continue this conversation with us again. Thank you so much for your time and for being here today, Dr. Ruby Tapia, and talking to us about the Cornell sweatshirt tweet. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.